Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right, episode sweet 16 of the Asking Why podcast. Welcome, Lanita. Hello. How's it going? Good. Good. How's your morning going so far? Pretty good. Clients back to back? Uh, yeah, can't complain. Awesome. Well, Lanita, um, for those listening, she works here. Um, she's been with me. You're one of the longest people who's been part of the practice. Yep. I've been super thankful to have you. It's been a couple of years now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of who you are. We're going to talk about trauma today. That's our focus for the podcast. Um, I think Lanita is amazing at dealing with trauma. I've referred her tons of clients and we've worked together with clients on all kinds of levels of trauma. Um, and so I'm really excited about kind of hearing, you know, what you do, what it looks like for you to understand what trauma is and for the average person out there to really just get a feel for, you know, a lot of us understand as clinicians, especially at our practice, what trauma is. And I think there's a lot of varying degrees of people out there who you know, they've heard trauma more in the culture. There's more of these terms, but really to break it down kind of today and get people to understand for a couple of reasons. One, for them to understand that maybe they have trauma that's unresolved. Maybe their behaviors and their symptoms and the things that are going on in their life are related to a trauma and it's not just happening. You know, one of my least favorite phrases is uh, it is what it is, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm always like, no, nothing is stagnant. Right. You know, nothing is just what it is. We can kind of look at it and figure it out and ask why and trying to understand the root. So that's the goal of the podcast today. Um, so tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and uh, what you do and what your certifications are and all that. Okay. Uh, I am originally from Texas. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in business at A&M Commerce. Um, when I graduated, I ran off to New York City to go work in the big banks up there and had a blast. <laughs> Um, while I was up there, I started uh, volunteering for an organization called the Soldiers Project, mm. which provides um, free confidential counseling services to veterans and their families post 9-11, uh, unlimited uh, services, might I add, which was so awesome. Um, and I became super passionate about the work I was doing with them. Um, one day I was standing around with, with a bunch of the, the folks that were in the organization. I said, you guys seem like you really love what you do. I was like, what, what's your background? What's your degrees? And they were like, well, we're social workers. Mm. I was like, that's great. I wish I could do that. <laughs> and they looked at, So at the time, what were you doing? Like, I was in banking. Okay. I, I worked in uh, <clears throat> the investment banks uh, in over-the-counter credit derivative products. Um, so very Wall Street, New very York. Very Wall Street, yeah. very New York. Um, and it was great. It, I learned so much while I was doing that. Um, but the work I was doing uh, with the veteran organization was very personal, um, my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and I'm a super proud daughter of a Vietnam vet and an Army wife as well. Um, but I was talking to them, and, and they were like, you know, you could do that. And I was like, no, I can't. I work in finance. Are you crazy? And they're like, no, you can do that. And so 
started talking to them, researching some programs, and um, before I knew it, I was back in Texas getting my master's degree in social work. Loved, loved, loved every minute of it. Um, I went to SFA, had fantastic teachers, fantastic colleagues, um, and shortly after I graduated, I got my license. So I'm now technically a licensed master social worker, um, and I'm in the process right now of pursuing my clinical license, which I'll be taking soon. Uh, I've been studying for that and being supervised for that, and it's, it's been an amazing journey and experience so far. Yeah, you got good supervisors. Yes, I do. Yeah, you, it's been fun to kind of staff cases with you and see you grow and you know work on that. I'm, I'm excited for you to get your C in your LCSW and yes. <laughs> you know, be able to have that under your belt. That'd be awesome. And that's, that's coming up, so I know you're nervous and you're going to do great. Um, so what, for the people that are out there, what, what is social work and kind of what, what do you do as a social worker? Social work is one of those fields where you can do almost anything. You will find social workers everywhere. Um, a lot of times people get this idea that it's just child welfare or, or just this, or, you know, working in, um, you know, dangerous situations, uh, but that's, and, and sometimes that does encompass that, but right. it is so much more as well. You will find social workers in hospitals and schools and communities doing uh, community organization, um, advocating, uh, being the voice for the voiceless. Um, yeah, because that's a big part of the social absolutely, worker movement, right? Absolutely. Um, a lot of students get really passionate about a certain area um, in, within the field and they go to school and they'll, they'll graduate and they can literally go wherever they want almost. But you'll see them in the court system, in, in mental health facilities, hospitals, medical field, you name it. Mm -hmm. So shout out to all the social workers out there. Working. Absolutely. It's hard jobs. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody thinks that social workers just work for uh uh, Department of Child Family Services, and they're always dealing with removing children. There's a ton of people that are out there that do that work. But, yeah, social workers kind of have their, their hands in all the cookie jars mm -hmm. when it comes to mental health. I think the clinical piece, right, that allows you to really focus in on doing what you're doing now, which is private practice, seeing people individually. and Absolutely. So that's awesome. And that's why I was drawn to it. I mean, because I, I went in with a lot of aspirations for different things, uh, mm -hmm. but the mental health aspect really appealed to me. And I had such great teachers, and it was such a great program. I went in super passionate about veterans and their mental health issues and stigmas, and I got to make that my research, the focus of that, and write on a lot of my papers on that. And so I knew a lot going in, so I was able to really learn more and interact in the community and interview veterans and uh, build my research from there, so it was great. Yeah, I love our, the story of how we kind of first started talking. So you know, in the practice, a lot of times it's just people connecting with me and talking about coming to work in here, somebody saying, Hey, I know so-and-so. And, and you're actually, I think the, the one person that came in off of like an indeed ad or like a, a work ad. Right. And I was, um, sick as a dog. And I remember this. <laughs> so I woke up, I had the stomach bug. My wife comes in the bathroom at like three in the morning. I'm in the shower. I just like had all the things on me and she's like, what are you in the shower for? And I'm like, I have the stomach bug. I already have a hotel room and I'm leaving. And she's like, cause we had two little kids and like, just could not get anybody sick. <clears throat> so I go to the hotel sick as a dog. I had my father-in-law bring me this stuff and I just put out the ad like the day before or a couple of days before or whatever. So I had to spend the day while being sick, answering phone calls and talking to people. And I remember when me and you get on the phone, like, just all the different connections that you just mentioned and military and background and passion and wall street and all these things. And, 
I remember just pacing around the the uh, the hotel room like super excited on one of my rants um and you were just so connected to what i was saying and it was just such a funny story but that's every time i think about you i'm like man that that's such a crazy like you know well i found you it's so funny when i was doing research in grad school i i found an interview that you'd done and i read your story and you're super open and vulnerable and honest about you know what brought you to mental health and um your story and I was like man he's a veteran and he has his own mental health agency I gotta go find this dude I gotta mm. work for him this is this would be perfect um so I kind of sought you out <laughs> oh nice that's well, a good fit I didn't know that so you know it's uh it's been great I mean like I said already I love working with you all the time and I hope that many more years we get to do this um let's talk about uh trauma so one of the things that I, I want you to dive into is kind of for the average person listening, what is trauma and um, kind of what's your experience with trauma and how that bring you to, cause you know, there's a lot of counselors <clears throat> that, and I was like this, I mean, you know, went to a great grad school at Fuller and got my master's in marriage and family therapy. But even then, like there's so much to learn and so much to do that in, and just the systems and we can get into all that, but we probably won't today, but you know, nobody really talked about trauma. And if I wouldn't have been in the military and had my own childhood history and already been in therapy, I wouldn't have been really looking for trauma and what about PTSD and, you know, the brain and all this kind of stuff, because they don't really teach you much of that in grad school. Was that kind of the same experience with you in social work? Um, they, they talked about it a little bit, but they didn't go into it near as in depth as, um, as maybe you would think, um, Honestly, for me, when I was in grad school, I did a lot of personal research, and, and I had one instructor um, specifically that literally had a PhD in trauma, mm. who I just went crazy about. Like, I loved listening to him, and his lectures were a little bit more geared towards that. But yeah, it doesn't get talked a lot about. I being in this agency and interacting with a community like we do, I'm actually really kind of shocked with some of the people that we interact with in leadership positions in churches and communities and schools and stuff that have not had any experience being trained in trauma. Mm -hmm. So when they are faced with a situation that is trauma driven, a lot of times they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And good people, you know, who have good intentions without education, it's very problematic. And I think we see that a lot in our offices, people coming in and saying, Oh, my pastor said this, or my, you know, Sunday school said this, or my boss did this. And it's like, they all did things that they knew to do with good intention, but it actually re-traumatized the person even more or made them feel super unsafe or so for the average person listening, what is for you, what is trauma and kind of what, what does that mean to you? And trauma? It, well, so I'm going to start with something you said when <laughs> I first, when I first started here and I went to go hear you at one of the churches and you were giving a, a personal interview on stage and you said trauma is anything that's not nurturing. Mm. I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, what? What does he mean? But what is he even talking about? And so the more more training I did, I do with this, the more I get it. And I, I must say this to every single one of my clients. I tell them because I tried to like break it down in layman's terms. I'm like, well, you know, I heard a client talk one time. He said trauma is anything that's not nurturing. So that really does open the door to a lot of different things that could be trauma now everybody's different but in a nutshell a basic a very basic generic definition of trauma trauma is any experience you have could be a car accident could be a hurricane could be an abusive relationship where you feel helpless and powerless and extremely overwhelmed mm -hmm. there is a stress response that happens to our bodies and our system um, that shifts us into a different lane if you will in order to survive um, and trauma 
and this is what I find a lot of clients struggle with. Trauma can be big T trauma. You can have your big T traumas like domestic violence, um, abuse, again, car accidents and, and whatnot. But then you also have these little T traumas, which can be things like childhood emotional neglect, uh, maybe having a critical parent. Um, maybe you got, you know, humiliated in front of your class in school doing a book report. Mm-hmm. You know, those, those little t- experiences that can add up. It can even be going home to a house every day that's super stressful and you're walking on eggshells. Yeah. Well, those experiences <clears throat> can add up over time to be traumatic. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've had to give it like a little bit of a, a basic definition. That's what I would say trauma is. Yeah, because, I mean, that's a good point. But, you know, the the thing that I try to think of with the not nurturing thing is people have a hard time with that because what we're not saying is, is that everything that you go through ruins your life right? or that hardship or difficulties then make you dysfunctional. But lots of people experience lots of trauma all the time Mm -hmm. and they're, they're quote unquote fine. You know, they, they function, they have supports. The question becomes like, why are some people, you know, why do some people experience this type of thing like alcoholism in the home and they don't become alcoholics? Right. Why do some people experience a car wreck and they're not scared to drive? Why? So what the culture does is go, well, that must not have been traumatic for them. Right. And it's like, well, you can't measure traumas against traumas. Right. Exactly. You can't you can't say because the, people have different history. They have a different genetic code. They have a different makeup. They have a different set of resiliency factors. They have a different support system that brings them into that moment and into that circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so what our culture is doing a really bad job of, in my opinion, right now is overgeneralizing everybody in group thinking. You know, oh, this is how you deal with trauma. This is how you deal with African-Americans. This is how you deal with the shooting issue. This is how you deal with politics. You know, we're, I mean, it's Inauguration Day right now, and it's like that has been a cultural trauma for everybody over the last year. And what I want us to do is, you know, remember, like, we, me and you today can talk about all that this is, but each person that comes in our office, the beautiful thing about being trauma trained is that we, we take them into context. We take their history and their background and their resiliency and their abilities into the context of their experience. Right. Absolutely. And, and so when I say anything that's not nurturing, what I mean is, is that we were not made to be violent with one another. Right. Over 3,000 years, 4,000 years, we have not, in millions of years, however you want to look at it, we have not developed fangs and claws. Like we have not turned into creatures that are violent. Right. If anything, we're trying to make ourselves less violent in nature and less, you know, to live longer lives. And the only way we do that is if we come together and connect and grow together. Absolutely. So that takes nurturing and connection and attention and attachment and attunement and all those things. And so when we as humans, as children, especially experience something that is not nurturing, it's violent, it's aggressive, it's anxiety provoking, it's fear based, it affects our brain and changes the way we see the world. Sure. Um, so for you, what's been your kind of experience with trauma and working here, but in general, kind of what made you, you talked about the military and, but like, tell me more about that. Um, working here, I've worked with a variety of different cases, um, from, I would say extreme trauma to, to small T trauma. Um, a lot of my research um, that I had done in grad school was trauma driven as well, focused around veterans and families and some of the obstacles they faced and their barriers to care um, in in a nutshell, basically. What about for you personally? Um, I think everybody goes through trauma personally. Yeah. Um, I've I've lost 
you know, cute pets and I've had family members pass and I've also um, heard war veteran stories from family members as well. Um, all of that affects you, right? Um, and I think it, it helps you connect on a deeper level with clients as well to validate them and empathize with them and, and understand their pain mm-hmm. so you can hear them in a way maybe they've never been heard before. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that if you understand, one of the perks of understanding trauma is that you you have a different lens in which you see the world through. And you said just a minute ago, I'll ask you the question, though, you know, how many people do you think have trauma? Everybody. <laughs> right. So, you know, if we know, if, if we, you know, trauma-informed care has kind of the assumption when we deal with people that they already have it, right? We don't know what level of functioning they're at, and we don't know what, what that trauma is, but our assumption is when someone comes in our office, when someone comes to your church, when somebody's in your, in your workplace, that they all have trauma. Right. And, and the thing I love about trauma and from care is it says, you know, what happened to, you know, not what's wrong with you. Yeah. Right. That's so good. Which, why is that different than let's say the DSM? Why is that different from the, well, the DSM is, can be very criteria driven, mm-hmm. you know, um, there's, but there's actually a lot of comorbidity out there. If you think about it, um, the DSM is helpful, you know, in terms of diagnoses and everything, but it, um, it only goes so far, I think. And it has, there's still a lot of work to be done with it. And, we, you know, we can thank the Vietnam vets for helping to put in PTSD into that criteria because that didn't happen until the 1980s. Right. I think it was like 1984. Yeah. yeah. So if you think about that on a timeline, you know, psychology has been such a, you know, there's, it's been, it's new in the, in the course of history. So why do you think it's taken so long for kind of trauma to be a thing that people were talking about? I think there's a big miseducation out there about that. I think it's always been something that's been riddled with shame. And, um, you know, there, I, going back to, like, my great-grandparents' generation, my grandparents' generation, they didn't have time to worry about trauma. It was more about survival. It mm. was more about we got to feed these kids. We got to survive on the land. Um, there wasn't the opportunities that we have now to better yourself and, you know, have a lot of access to education and stuff. So I don't think it was a priority back then. They probably had no idea Mm -hmm. that it even existed. And there was also this survival of the fittest, pull your, you know, suck it up, buttercup, pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality back then. Um, do you think that's because they're more resilient? Um, resilient. Yeah. To a degree. I think a lot of a lot of the culture played into it as well during that time. Um, if you, if you ever have some time and go back and look at some of the old psychology books from like way back when in the fifties and the sixties and the forties, you know they didn't even understand that babies needed to be cuddled and picked up and held and loved. You right. know, it wasn't until um, the sixties when John Balby started watching children playing in the park and some were running and coming back to mom and some were terrified of mom and he was like, "There's something to this." Mm-hmm. So they did a lot of research in that, and lo and behold, attachment theory was born. Right. Um, Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite. <laughs> that, oh. I, I talk a lot about that. Um, well, how do you know attachment theory is super important because people don't realize that that is, you know not attaching is traumatic. Yeah. So to that point, I wondered if we were going to talk about that because that, that that easily fits in this conversation. Um, if you grow up in a in a really healthy family environment where there's all the feels and the loves and you're cuddled and you're 
you're told you're special and you you're heard and validated and understood and all that great stuff you grow up with this fantastic gift called secure attachment Mm -hmm. and that means basically that you you're okay getting close to people you know you don't have any kind of fear or avoidance in relationships um you handle stress a lot better it rolls off your back um, for the rest of the world that didn't get it, you get what we call insecure attachment. And so you have some people that are super clingy. Um, and then you have some people that are just straight up fearful of getting close and, mm-hmm. and, and in, in relationships and stuff. The great thing about attachment is it can change. You know, if you partner with somebody that is a secure, you're likely to change your own attachment and mm-hmm. become secure. Um, but it's it's something that's kind of difficult to because again this stuff isn't talked about on a, on a daily basis so it's kind of hard to understand you know you get some people uh, and couples counseling is a great place to to see this stuff play out you know um, some maybe somebody's too clingy or somebody's you know fearful avoidant you know the thing is that didn't originate within your marriage that mm. started someplace else that started in your early family of origin you know yeah you brought it into your marriage yeah you brought it you, we just bring the baggage into our marriage absolutely you know yeah that's good so can you talk about the different attachment styles uh yeah there is uh, there's a big book i'm recommending right now and a lot of my couples called we do by stan tatkin and he has a lot of, he has a really great book on that it's in english uh, but he talks about, um, he uses an island uh, to describe attachment styles, which is really kind of interesting. He says there's the anchors, which are the secures, mm-hmm. and then you have the islands, which are kind of off in their own space, and then you have the waves, which are the anxious avoidant. I love you, come near me, now go away. I love you, come near me, now go away. <laughs> For sure. Um, and so... And it, what's the island? The the island is the fear, the avoidant, okay. right? And that, you know, attachment is not a black and white thing, yeah, right? It's, it's very yeah. gray. It's plotted on a graph, basically. Um, so some people fall into a little more anxious ambivalent. Some people fall into, you know, a little bit more fearful avoidant. I would say a lot of times if you had, if you've come from a very chaotic environment where there's been a lot of domestic violence and chaos and fear, you're probably going to wind up being a fearful avoidant, mm-hmm. you know, whereas if you had uh, caregivers that were um, kind of anxious or sometimes, you know, receptive to your needs, but sometimes not, you kind of learn this push-pull, you know, maybe sometimes my needs are important, maybe sometimes they're not. And that can present a variety of different ways um, in terms of attachment. Mm-hmm. So attachment, when you're saying attachment trauma or attachment failure is another kind of term to talk about it. How does that, those things, so what we're specifically talking about for people who are listening and getting lost in the words, you know, it's growing up as a child and um, needing to connect with a parent, needing to know your place in the world, needing to know your identity, right? They, you know, and we can kind of put a Christian spin on it, that God designed us for these two, you know, kind of needs to be met, which is to feel loved and, and valued and to feel safe. And the way we parent, you know, as as a mom and a dad and is that we connect with our child in a way that teaches them who they are and, and how they can get their needs met. And needs like attachment, you know, affection, attention, affirmation, right? So the kids need time. They need quality time with us to see us, to spend time with us. They need to be hugged and kissed and loved. And then they need to be told who they are and in context of the family. And because families, but you know, mom and dad didn't get that from their family or their family of origin, then they don't know how to give it. 
Right. They haven't been through therapy. Right. They're still responding to their child because their child is reflecting something in them that they don't have. And, you know, there's this mess that happens. And so then the kid doesn't get what they need. And I think what a lot you would agree that a lot of people say, well, I just learned to survive. Right. I got my needs met in other ways. Sure. And that's attachment failure. It's it's not knowing that you can go to your parents and get your needs met. So then you have to hide it or, you know, do something else different. So how does that play out into adulthood? Um, a variety of different ways. Um, it's really interesting how a lot of people subconsciously marry their parent. Mm. Um yeah, there's that. Ken, is it Ken Adams, the book, when, you, when you're married to mom or whatever? It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of uh, trauma reenactment is another really interesting concept I like to talk about with clients a lot, too. You know, I, given if, if you grow up in, let's just say, a, a toxic situation um, where maybe there was domestic violence in your house, um, you might seek out partners that kind of, somewhat resemble um those caregivers that were abusive you Mm -hmm. know because you're seeking an opportunity to show yourself that you can have power and control Mm. because when you're a child and you have to sit and witness and watch that stuff you are very powerless and you have no control and that's trauma yeah you know um i think people go well that's super irrational and crazy of course (laughs) (laughs) but we do it you know our 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 subconscious or our conscious brain is what this big and our subconscious brain is is this big you know mm-hmm. and it's full of like neural pathways that are, are cut from an early age you know so it's sometimes people don't realize it a lot of times until they're in therapy you know or they wait you know or the Gottman say on average couples wait seven years before they finally get into therapy mm-hmm. and by then everything's falling apart at the seams yeah you have to do this work before you get married and a lot of people don't want to, they don't have time for that, you know, or they're happy or they think everything's fine. But I say, you really need to get under the hood of your partner before you get married. Well, that's a cultural problem, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about is that we have a lot of churches and a lot of places and a lot of businesses and a lot of families that don't understand that this is even happening. Right. Right. They just have survived whatever childhood they've been in. They generally are okay, quote unquote. And so, it's just marriage. That's just marriage. Like you just get married to mar- it. I mean, their view of marriage, their view of attachment and relationships is already broken. Mm-hmm. And so they're seeking a, a partner to make up for right. the things that they didn't get mm-hmm. or seeking a partner to show that these things are never going to happen again. Right. I mean, would you say that's kind of the norm? Absolutely. Yeah. And so we get married and then that doesn't work very well. And, you know, things are chaotic. I mean, you can give it to culture too. And I know culture is made up of us and we consume and that's what makes culture. But like the idea of like Jerry Maguire back in the day, which like you complete me, you know, that, that was such a popular movie because that idea, that premise is permeating through all of us in relationship that I'm going to get married so you can fulfill in me all the things that I don't have. Yeah. I, I remember when that movie came out, like I had a therapist in college that, harped on that movie every time I came in she was like that's not real that's not right absolutely I mean there's there's music you know that says I'm going to be your everything and you know all these ideas and and they're just toxic because they're and and they're not just subtly okay I think that's the other thing that you know and we know this and but it's like these messages that we hear in culture about love and connection they're attachment issues you know it's insane how 
but they're, they're very unhealthy views of the world and views of relationship and they're going to get us in major trouble. And yet they're what's popular. Right. Why? Because they resonate with people. Well, I think they're a nice escape too. Oh, absolutely. Well, they say everything's okay. Well, look, they're singing about it. So this just must be the way that things are. Right. Until you get in an actual relationship and it's not working. Yeah. So I I think there's a gigantic disconnect in like presenting what a healthy relationship really is and supposed to look like and act like and feel like. I think a lot of people get confused. They never had it modeled for them Mm -hmm. ever. Um, They they come from a toxic family system where trauma just keeps getting passed down generation after generation and they don't know and they just, they do what they know. (laughs) Yeah. I think people have, and I think people have a really hard time too because they don't want to say anything bad about their parents. Yeah. (laughs) I hear that a lot too. And I try to explain, you know, it's not about crucifying your parents or blaming them or shaming them. And I said, believe me, we're not going to go have an intervention with your parents right now because they're not going to listen to you. (laughs) Yeah, please don't. They're not, (laughs) it's going to make your situation worse. You know, by the time you get to adulthood, it's, it's honestly your responsibility to own your trauma. Mm -hmm. Like you're the only one that can fix you. Yeah. Right. That's good. Yeah. So when we ask people to own their trauma, what we don't mean is that you have to go back and call your parents and say, I can't believe you did all this and shame on you. But the reality is, is, is if, you know, one of the core issues with, with somebody in a trauma response or living their life with, you know, trauma symptoms is that they shame themselves tremendously. Right. And shame, shame is critical because I think that's an important belief system to kind of, uh, get curious about as well in therapy. Um, you know, the difference between guilt and shame, guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. And Mm -hmm. so many, uh, mental illnesses like it from addiction to, you know, anxiety, depression, you name it, are shame driven. And that comes from a a faulty belief system somewhere Mm -hmm. in childhood, you know, if you look through your childhood through the lens of a a child's eyes, you know, they don't have the brain of an adult to discern, you know, reality and what's right and what's wrong and what's actually going on. So a child will try to make sense of their toxic situations in childhood the best way they can. A lot of times they start blaming themselves, you know, well, I didn't get all A's again or dad's in a bad mood again, so I must be bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and that leads, um, to, you know, for a lot of people, um, realizing that you know maybe all my needs can't be met by people you know but um this other thing this alcohol or drugs or whatever gives me the same result every single time so I'm, that's going to become my most important need yeah and that's that's from the work of Carnes, uh, his belief system you know yeah, patrick Carnes. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean we work a lot with that with the csat and so you're a certified sure. sex addiction therapist as well yes. and you work in that wor- world and and we know that when you're dealing with addiction you know, nine times out of 10, what you said comorbidity earlier, which for the average person, that means you have a couple things going on at the same time. Two or three or four. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, when people come in our office, if you're out there and you're like, man, I'm overwhelmed because I have all these things. Well, yeah, you have all these things, which are probably all symptomatic, meaning they are a symptom of the original problem. You know, so if you're out there drinking or drugging or, you know, addicted to pornography or cheating or, you know, all these big ticket items, it's probably because you have an underlying history with something that you know hurt you so much that now your pain response is to go cope so you're not in pain and to avoid right and that's very trauma oriented um tell me about like how the brain functions with trauma and and so we have this attachment thing right and that's all still brain but like 
So kids growing up in a home where there's alcoholism or there's a divorce or there's something that's going on, they're trying to get their needs met and connect, but the parents are trying to get their needs met. So they're not focused on taking care of the kid. What happens to the brain in that, in those situations? Um, so an interesting way to think of the brain is, um, if you take your fist, if you do this, you can imagine your fist being your brain, this being your prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. this being the brain stem, and way back here is your little amygdala. Right. Um, a very simple way to think of it is your prefrontal cortex is your watchtower, mm -hmm. and your amygdala is your smoke detector. Right. So let's say I'm going to go on a roller coaster, and it sounds, you know, my my expectation for that is it's going to be fun, exciting, you know, great. And then I'm going to be off of it in three minutes. Well, that whole experience comes into my brain as, you know, not stressful, fun, exciting. Right. And that whole experience is stored in my amygdala a certain way, um, calm, what have you. Well, when you have a traumatic experience, it hits your brain differently. Your amygdala, um, takes in that information that experience and it it takes an imprint of it of the emotional response and most importantly the sensory input of it so it is stored not as a story it's stored as fragments mm. um from your five senses which you right. see smell hear feel taste and what have you um and also when that happens this whole reasoning uh, piece at the beginning the prefrontal cortex shuts down completely right <laughs> Um, and so what will happen a lot of times, and kind of going back to veterans for a second, and fireworks, for example, logically they know it's fireworks, okay? For sure. <laughs> but um, the body doesn't think of it that way. That he, then when they hear the fireworks, it takes them to a different place, mm -hmm. and it's interpreted differently. Um, suddenly, you know, um, a red light is not um, a red light anymore. It's a spark, you mm -hmm. know. Um, sometimes veterans, you know, will see trash on the side of the road and freak out. And, well, it's just a trash. No, it, you know. It, Could have been an it, ID. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I think that's important to kind of understand how that information is stored within the body as a stress, um, as a stress response. Um, because you can be going along your day just fine, you know, and not remember a few weeks later that you went to drop the dry cleaning off and drop the dog off and get the mail and all that. But if you had a car accident, boy, you're going to remember that mm -hmm. because it is stored in the body as a traumatic event. And unless it gets processed, you know, it's going to stay stuck in there and you can have flashbacks and intrusive thoughts and emotional detachment and what have you. Mm hmm. Yeah, because it doesn't just write as Bessel van der Kolk talks about the body keeps the score. If you've if you've not read that book, you know we've talked about it on other podcasts, but you know really unpacks how the brain works, how the body you know keeps these things stored, and and it doesn't go away until you process it, until you unpack it, and even when you do, it still like lingers. You know, I know for me, um, I'll never forget uh, coming back. You know, we're in Afghanistan, and we had this. You know, when we were there, it was two thousand three, so it was just all landmines. You know, clearing landmines, clearing unexploded ordnance from um, when Afghanistan fought. Uh, the, I think it was the Russians. I don't remember. It was in Rambo, whatever movie that was. Um, but they had that that war, and so there were all these things that like bombs had been dropped, but they just stuck in the ground, and then nobody messed with them. Mm -hmm. So we're on this old uh, Air Force base, and we're clearing all these landmines. So we did that for months and months and months. And you're always trying not to step on something. You're always trying not to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And and so that would be, you know, somebody might look at that and say that's a big T trauma. 
right? But because we knew we were going into it, we were kind of trained for it, it was a little T trauma. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean is, is that the first time I went in a landmine field and had to walk around, like I didn't freak out. I didn't have these, you know, I got anxious and nervous, but like I knew what I was doing and I knew the safety. And But once you do that 50 times, even if you didn't have um, emotional responses each time, that interpretation starts getting stored and that underlying fear and that knowledge that you could die and all those things get put in there. And so I remember coming in, uh, I don't remember when this was, but it was something after being there eight or nine months and they were watching, uh, Vegas, somebody was watching Vegas vacation on TV mm -hmm. and I walked by and it was a, a Chevy chase is like running through this desert. I think that's the scene. And I either said, or remember thinking like, he better watch out. Like he's going to hit it like a toe popper. Or it, but it was just so automatic. Right. And I remember getting back. And for probably six months, every time I'd go to the park or the woods or somewhere, I would step around things. Mm -hmm. I'd see something in the ground that was metal and I'd, I'd move around it, you know, and, and, and like I'm in the middle of America in the right. park somewhere, but like that's an automatic response. And it's not that I freaked out, right? It's, but it's this, this underlying stored auto automatic response that we have. Right. That was your smoke detector. Right. Smelling smoke. I ended up working at Louisiana college and being a lifeguard and there upstairs, there were these guys who would power cling and you know, they'd slam the weights down and I was past the point and had done enough therapy where I knew what it was. But every time one would hit, I would think to myself, wow, that was a big mortar or that was a big landmine. Right. And it was like, I it just first, I know that that was irrational and I'd kind of push through it, but it was still the automatic thought process took a long time to get out of. And there's still things, you know, 15, 20 years later where it's like, things will hit me a little weird or there's a sound or there's a pop or there's whatever. And you know, it's just a strange right. response. So you take that and you, ex you know, exacerbate that out to somebody being deployed multiple times, being in lots of gunfire, getting shot, you know, getting shot and hit, hitting an ID, all these things that happen to people. And you, there becomes a level where people can't function. Right. Exactly. So how, how do you, let's talk about, um, like kind of treatment for that. What do we do or what, what is the way that we help people kind of overcome some of these symptoms? A bunch of things. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, most, talk about it. right? <laughs> my motto is I meet you where you're at, you know, like I, a lot of times people come in and I'm like, wow, I really like to get them into this or this or this, but they're just not ready. Mm -hmm. Um, so really basic way to just start with that is just healthy coping skills you know if if you're having a trouble with alcohol or drugs let's let's focus on sobriety first mm -hmm. okay we're not even in a good place right now to, to do some deep trauma mm -hmm. right um if you have i got a lot of stuffers that and just, why is that why is it not well because i think people come in well we have two issues one is people don't get trained in trauma so they don't need to look for it right and two, people that are trained in trauma, people come in and they know you're trained in trauma, so they want you to fix it. Right. So why is it that we wouldn't just dr jump straight into, like, because you and I know when somebody comes in and we can meet two or three sessions in, we know what seven months needs to look like. Right. We know what two years are is going to look like because mm -hmm. we've done it. But, you know, we have to go slower. Why is that? Well, because if if you have never processed any of your stuff and you've never given a voice to your pain and you've always stuffed it and numbed it with alcohol or drugs or what have you, you're not going to be in a place to open the Pandora's box and, and dig deep into like the deep, heavy trauma. You're not going to be able to handle it. Mm. You're going to just want to go run back to the alcohol. This is too hard. Right. So that's why focusing on sobriety first is really important because you are teaching yourself that you can handle it. Yeah. I can do this. I can get sober. I can... 
I can sit with my pain. I know how to cope in a healthy way to stress. I don't have to run to the alcohol. I can do some grounding or some breathing or meditation. I can go call a new friend. Um, calling, calling friends is, you know, side note there, that's super important because particularly if you have bad attachment or insecure attachment, uh, you know, why the group therapy model works so well is because you learn it's okay to be raw and vulnerable with other people and not be met with shame or judgment. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to put your the rawest parts of yourself out there and be met with love and understanding. And so I think that's why, you know, we talk about 12-step programs and group therapy. And, you know, it's that's why it's really important to end the heat of the moment when you want to urge or act out. You call a good friend. Mm-hmm. Or you call somebody from your group. You know, it's learning a, do, a new way to cope with with your stress and your stuff um but getting sober um helps you begin to also get in touch with your emotions um which are fantastic messengers that are there to tell you more about your experience and give insight into your internal self um and it also teaches you that you can handle this you know you can ride the big waves when when sadness shows up your your door you sit with it you process it mm-hmm. you know you, you say hey sadness I see you uh, but you're not writing my story you're not telling me who I am you know it's I think Susan David has done a lot of work in this area she has a good resource in terms of uh, learning about emotions and how to process them but she says it's important to put some distance between you and your emotions. You know, don't say I am sad or I'm angry. Just say I'm noticing I'm sad. I'm noticing I'm angry. That helps put some distance between you and what you're feeling and not so that you overly identify with them in the yeah, moment. That's good. Yeah. That's externalizing the problem. You know, you're not a thing. You're, you're feeling a thing. You're experiencing a thing, but that's not you. It's sure. not your identity. Yeah. It's not what you're stuck in forever. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Right. And the more you get comfortable with emotions, I mean, because they're really scary for some people at first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the more time you spend with them and get comfortable with them, the more they, they flow quicker. Yeah, because, I mean, in order to come in and do the work, you have to be vulnerable. And vulnerability right. means t- putting the shield down, taking the armor off, being honest about what you feel. And if we go back to that whole attachment model and the trauma of childhood, like, you're not taught to do that. Right. So it makes it's completely irrational to share with someone your deep dark secrets and expect for a total stranger or a person at church or even your spouse to see you and love you unconditionally. Right. If the caregivers that you had that were supposed to love you unconditionally didn't, how is some random other person going to? Right. If you do tell them and do share with them, then you know all that's going to be given to you is pain. Right. Absolutely. So what are some other ways that you know? Keep going with the treatment part of it. Uh, breathing. Uh, breathing sounds so boring, but, you know, it's the one thing, physical thing you have control over in the moment of stress. Your breath, right? You're, you're always going to be breathing one way or the other. Uh, that connects you to your nervous system. You know, you have a parasympathetic nervous system and a sympathetic nervous system. The breath, you know, when you... We do a four, four, four. You inhale for four. You hold for four. You exhale for four. You rest for four. Now, the first time I did that, I almost I was gasping for air. I'm, I'm an asthmatic, <laughs> so I tell you a word of advice. Maybe you shorten it to like three or two. Um, but if you watch your heart rate on, I have a Garmin because I'm a runner. Um, if you watch your heart rate, you can literally watch it go down in session. Right. Sometimes it's kind of freaky for clients. I'm like, what? let's get anxious. What's going on in your head right now? Okay, let's do some breathing. Look at your heart rate. Wow, how did you do that? I'm like, no, I didn't do that. You did that. 
Um, yeah, I mean, people think breathing techniques and, you know, they see movies about breathing with therapists and all this stuff, and they're like, oh, that's not going to work. It's so stupid and cheesy, and but it is super helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's giving people empowerment, right? It's letting them control their bodies in a way, in a healthy way that, you know, they're not choosing to. Yeah. The other big one that's super popular is the 54321 grounding. You know, when you're in your head and you're your brain's about to go down the rabbit hole. You got to get out of your head and into your environment. Kind of going back to that sensory input we were talking about earlier, you know, start naming five things you see, four things you feel, three things you hear, two things you smell, and one thing you're grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I tell people to do that over and over and over. Yeah, that's um, super helpful. Something you can do <clears throat> when you're in Target or Walmart or in your car, um, a coping skill you can pull out of the back of your pocket. Oh, yeah. When I did a, what was that, a few months ago when the hurricanes were coming through, you know, I was super, you know, it's been a long time since one was supposed to just smash us and like it was going to smash us. And I had, you know, get a generator and all this stuff. And, you know, I'd been through Katrina. And so I was really anxious about everybody losing power, you know, everybody not having any food. We're in the middle of this pandemic where everything's already crazy. And I remember, you know, I went and did a video or a short little clip on our Facebook page, you know, about grounding techniques because I was literally doing them in the bedroom. And I was like, well, this would be helpful, you know, and so many people messaged me. Oh, my gosh. Like, I've never thought of that. I did it. And it was so helpful. And it's so true. I mean, because your past and your future both cause so much anxiety. You know, you, you leave your body and you get out of that present moment and you lose all control. So if you're going back in the past and looking at what you've done or what's happened and you're feeling anxious and fear and, and shame, or if you go to the future and you go, well, this is going to happen forever and this is always going to be and this tragedy's coming, mm -hmm. then, I mean, everything gets to spiraling. But if you can get in the moment or get in the present state of where you're at and, and kind of ground yourself to who you are, then, you know, you're, you're, you start to chill and can breathe and you recognize that you're breathing crazy. I mean, all of that's part of the, the process. Yeah, you learn you can tolerate it and that you'll get through it and you'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a very, you know, uh, paradoxical intervention for panic attacks, which is, you know, when somebody's about to have one, just to tell them to have it. You know, it's like, oh, you feel like you're about to have one? Well, you know, have, the, have it. Go for it. Have the worst panic attack you've ever had right now. Let's do it. Let's do it together. I'll have one with you. And a lot of times what happens is, is that they can't have it because the biggest thing that causes these panic attacks is the fighting off and the fear of having it. You know, there's a, a lady in grad school who would throw up before she would speak. She would get so anxious that she would get up and puke. And so what she started to tell herself was, I'm going to throw up right now. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get super nauseous and puke. And then she couldn't, and she would be able to do the speeches. Right. And, and I'm not saying that works for everybody, yeah. but it, it, it's counterintuitive to be vulnerable but it's the answer to trauma. Sure. You know, and I always say, and you've heard me say this a bunch, you know, the, the three things we need to heal from any kind of trauma in the past is, is our perception of God, our perception of others, and our perception of ourselves. But why that's so hard is that typically our trauma is around some religious situation that happened, some other person happening or, or doing something to us, and then that causing this fractured view of ourself. Mm -hmm. And so it's like the thing we need to heal are the things that damaged us. And we've lumped everybody into the scary, dangerous category. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, tell me about, I know you're trained in EMDR, and so is pretty much everybody else here, but let's talk about EMDR for a minute. Um, why is EMDR is eye movement desensitization um, and reprocessing? This is my favorite topic. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. <laughs> I love EMDR. Um, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It's a fancy way of saying we can process our traumatic memories. 
Um, the story about how it was discovered was really interesting by the great Francine Shapiro. Uh, she was fellow New Yorker, um, teaching, she got her undergrad in literature, uh, was working on a postdoctoral uh, dissertation in literature, found out she had cancer, I think that was 1979. After she started working on healing through that, she started researching, because she was a researcher, I guess, by nature, uh, into stress responses within the immune system. In 87, she got some other distressing news, I'm not sure exactly what, but she went to a park to go walk around and collect her thoughts, and she realized her eyes were moving back and forth. And she was like, wow, I feel a little bit better, this is odd. So she started researching into that, and she she basically discovered EMDR. Um, I think the clinical community was like, you have a PhD in what? (laughs) She was like, okay, I'll show you. Um, So she went back, got a PhD, of course, in psychology, and opened her own institute, the rest is history. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so basically how it works though is, um, by the time you get to adulthood, right. And you decide to sit down with your your therapist and talk about whatever it is that's going on with you. You are this literally the sum of your life experiences and everybody's had different experiences, different messages they were sent growing up, different households they grew up in. Um, and all of that is stored in our brains in this, what we call memory network, And embedded within this memory network is what we call this adaptive information processing system. So if you can think of your brain as being like a big computer, if you've had something traumatic happen and it still stays with you, right, your brain, the whole system up there literally hasn't had a chance to digest it or process it, basically. So what EMDR does is it gives you the opportunity to do that. A lot of times people come in and they feel stuck with a certain type of situation. Their left brain logical knows it one way, but their right brain emotion knows it differently. Um, so you might logically know, I know I shouldn't be anxious. Uh, I, I do this all the time. You know, everything yeah. will be fine. But emotionally, your your stomach is in knots. And so you- let's, let's give a specific example. So let's use, because we do a lot of personal injury car wreck stuff, so let's do that. So it's a pretty general, benign, not benign for those that have been in car wrecks, but it's not rape, so it's a little easier to palpable, palpable for people. So somebody gets in a car wreck, they've driven their whole life, never had any anxiety around driving, but now they're having you know, shortness of breath, they're f- afraid for their life, they get anxious when they drive, they're having all these different symptoms of, you know, a car pulls up beside them and they're panicking. They're terrified to let other people drive for them. They're having flashbacks to the sounds and the sights and the smells of the wreck, you know, you know et cetera, et cetera, for everybody. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of going for people. That's the DSM. Like I'm going sure. through the criteria of PTSD. So then they come into your office and they're like, hey, I'm having trouble driving. I heard EMDR works. I'm just catching, catching yeah, yeah. you up. So go from there. How does it work? Yeah. So you're talking about just with where you're at, you're saying there's this memory network, there's this connection and you want to get rid of the symptoms. So why is EMDR beneficial for that? Well, it uses what we call bilateral simulation, which is eye movements um, back and forth. So, and I tell folks, you know, basically in a nutshell, every, every night when you go to sleep at night, you fall into this deep level of REM eye movement sleep and you, um, your body kicks off this whole host of you know, processing systems like cleaning house. And, you know, when we sleep, that's when babies grow the most. When you're sick, you sleep. So that's when your your brain goes into this different gear of processing the day's events. And if you've ever had a bad dream or nightmares or what have you, it's, to me, it's kind of a sign that your your brain up there is trying to sort some stuff out. 
probably not in the most effective way because we've all had some weird dreams, myself included, right? Yeah. Um, but what EMDR does is it kind of takes that functionality and brings it into our office in person. Um, and we have more control over the process and we can slow it down, we can speed it up. So basically by going back to the traumatic event or the memory and thinking about the images that you see, possibly the negative cognition that you feel related to it, like I'm powerless, I'm out of control, I have no choices. And the biggest piece, the sensory input, right? Noticing where you feel the disturbance in your body. You can think of those things and do, you know, we have tappers that we use that um, engage the left the left hand and the right hand. You can also do eye movements where you look left, left and right to access the left brain and the right brain to say, hey, left hemisphere, hey, right hemisphere, let's start talking and processing this event. Right, because the event made your prefrontal stop working. Right, right? shut down. So what should be able to happen is your right brain or your left brain, which is very logical, math, black and white thinking, right? It, it is turned off during traumatic events. And your right brain, which is emotions and art and fantasy, is, is lit up like a Christmas tree. Right. And so after that event, it doesn't just go back. Right. It doesn't erase the memory at all. It just helps you process it in a different way and gain a new perspective on it. Mm -hmm. So you still look back and you can remember it. But instead of saying, I'm helpless, I'm powerless, instead you can say, you know, I'm resilient, I'm strong, I'm a survivor. Right. Because you're changing your, you're trying to change your belief systems, right? Exactly. So a lot of therapy over the last however long has been behavior modification. How do I stop having shortness of breath? How do I stop having panic attacks? How do I stop doing these things? And what trauma therapy with EMDR specifically is trying to do is get to the root causes, get to the root negative belief that we believe is shaping the thoughts and feelings, which is shaping the, the actions slash symptoms that are physical, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody feels like the car wreck, I'm in danger or I'm responsible or mm-hmm. I'm a bad driver, mm-hmm. then we want them to look in the future and say, what would you, what would you want to think about yourself? Right. Yeah. I am good enough. I am smart. I am safe. And by doing the bilateral simulation, that allows their brain to kind of catch up and change that negative belief to a positive belief. Right. And process it so it yeah. doesn't stay stuck. Absolutely. You know, because I think that's, you know, that's a lot of what's going on there. People getting stuck. They're reliving the event over and over and over again because it hasn't had a chance mm-hmm. to go through those natural channels and get filed away in the file cabinets in our brains where they need to go. Yeah, I love the file cabinet analogy. It's like, you know, your file cabinet's in, you know, in a certain order, and then trauma happens, you throw it down a hill, and all the files fall out, and you just kind of pick them up and shove them wherever they're supposed to be. Right. So people, you know, their, their childhood trauma is next to their current relationship, or, you know, their work situation is close to their dad yelling at them, and, and now you're wondering why any boss who is a little more authoritative than others or who is quiet or who is, you know, whatever is causing you to feel like you're eight years old. Right. Can you talk a little bit about like, um, trauma being stored at the age in which it happens and how that, what that looks like? <sighs> yeah. Inner, inner child kind of stuff. Oh, inner child, fun stuff. Yeah. That, that's interesting as well. Typically the age, the onset age of when your trauma happens is when you kind of, can become emotionally stunted at that age so sometimes you'll you'll see couples in an in session and fighting and you know (laughs) one's acting like an eight-year-old the other one's acting like a 12 year old um so i think it's important to say you know what how old do you feel right now Mm -hmm. you know um and when you say acting like that all we mean is is that you're not acting like a rational adult right who can use their prefrontal who can have rational thought who can emotionally communicate 
it's just yelling and screaming and high emotions and lots of irrational behaviors. Yeah, and lots of rage too. And and kind of going back a little bit to what we said before, there might be something about that partner or that person that reminds you of something that you thought you forgot about a long time ago and and here we are. And you get stuck in this toxic negative cycle doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to get you there. Absolutely. Um, But inner child work, it's kind of like I said before, you get to a certain age in adulthood, Going back and having an intervention with siblings and parents is not, it it could help, but you know, it's probably not the ideal situation because they might not be where you are emotionally. So it's up to us as adults to own it and love ourselves the way that we should have been loved back then. Yeah. And I think that you have the ability to do that if you do your own work first, you know, like a lot of times people think, oh, well, I need to go make this, you know, conversation and have this reconciliation and all this stuff. And it's like, well, if you're ready for that, yes but you have to be ready enough that if they're not willing to accept it or they're going to keep being the person they were, that it doesn't tear you down. Right. Or otherwise it's going to trigger you. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it is going to trigger you. Yeah. But if you've done the work where your, your belief system is I am good and I am loved and you've resolved the problem, then you're actually not going to your parent or your significant other or to whoever hurt you to get any kind of affirmation. You're going to say your piece so you can get it off your chest so you can move on. Right. And I think that's what people, you know, forget is that that that's the process. Um, I think it's cool speaking of EMDR. I know last year, maybe or year before, you know, I think Grey's Anatomy had a, uh, an episode where they used EMDR. So I think a lot more people know about it. Um, I think it's a great tool. You know, I want people to understand that it's just a tool that, you know, a lot of what we do, the talk therapy, the safety bringing, the education, the prepping, all of that is part of EMDR as well. That it's not mm-hmm. just you come in, sit down, do some eye movement, it goes away. Right. There's a lot to using that tool. And the tool is kind of a, a, a steroid shot or a speed up shot for some people. But for some other people, you know, EMDR is not appropriate and it's not something that we have to do. I always try to think of everything that I'm doing in therapy as kind of being EMDR focused, meaning I want people to be in the office I want them to be present. I want them to be connected. I want them to be in their body and in the moment. And I want them to kind of go right brain where they're feeling what we're talking about, but not too far to where they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. But then I want them to go back and be logical so they can make sense of what they're saying and what their emotions are. And it's kind of this dance back and forth that we try to take them through. And all of that is quote unquote, an EMDR kind of idea. Yeah. Um, I think putting it on paper and saying, how exactly does this happen? And how does it work? Like, there are some people who are very anal and strategic in how they do it. And that's great. But I think in general, if people can understand that it's not just the, it's not just the bilateral stimulation that we're doing when people come in super important. Yeah. And I, you guys did a talk a while back where you kind of touched on that a little bit where, and, and I, I've used that also in, in a couple of sessions as well, where one person is fighting and they're emotional um, and they're being met with logic because they're they're feeling attacked and they're getting defensive. Mm-hmm. And it's like when somebody's coming at you, cultivating that self awareness of where is that coming from in my partner, or where is that coming from in this person? That's probably coming from an emotional tender place. Yeah. So logic is not the answer right now. Mm-hmm. So maybe some empathy and some validation and meeting them where they're at is probably what's going to help us connect right now. And then we can go over the logic later. Absolutely. You know, when we're calm down. Yeah, I think all of us, if you're feeling emotional, you know, just 
I try to, you know, look at people as like with a sign above their head, you know, and it's like if they're being emotional and they're crying and they're being loud and they're angry and they're frustrated, like I want to see that right brain sign, like a little arrow with lights, right. going, ding, 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 ding. Like you need to talk to this, right? You need to talk to this side. Yeah. And then I say, wow, that must be hard. And that, that must really suck. And I can see where you're at and, oh, do you feel like this? And you know, oh, that makes perfect sense based on what you've been through. Sure. And then the person just weeps typically, yeah, yeah. right? They just, they, they take a deep breath and they calm down and then I can you know, like turn, click the light off and turn the left light on and go, okay, now let's talk about what the reality is. Mm-hmm. Do you think your husband actually doesn't love you? Right. You know, because he came in and he didn't thank you for dinner, you know, or he wanted, you know, something else, you know, does that mean he doesn't love you? Mm-hmm. And they'll go, well, no, I know he loves me. And then it's like, well, what were we talking about? Well, in the moment I felt disrespected and unloved and like he doesn't care that I cooked and, and it's like, right, well, what'd that remind you of? Yeah. Where do you think that came from? Right. And then you go down the rabbit hole and it's like, oh, this actually has nothing to do with my husband and everything to do with me. Right. My husband triggered or accentuated the thing that was already going on. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk to your husband about how not to do that. Right. Cause he can, he can't play a role in not triggering you, Sure. but it's giving people the empowerment to go. Oh man, I have triggers. My other favorite analogy is the tall grass analogy, which I think you've heard me talk about before, but you know, it's like if you and your best friend are walking down a street and there's this tall thick, let's say bamboo and grass and a tiger jumps out and mauls your friend, right? It drags them off and kills them. Well, a couple of weeks later, you're going down a street on another place and you see tall grass and bamboo. What are you going to do? Not go in the grass. Yeah. You're going to run from it. You're going to get sweaty. Your fists are going to clench. And then you're going to replay that moment that happened with your friend. And my question always is, did the tall grass kill your friend? Right. No, it's not actually the problem. It's not actually dangerous. Right. It's the tiger that you don't want to talk about. Right. It's the avoidance of the real thing. And so now in your life, you have all this tall grass in your life that's reminding you of the tiger. Mm -hmm. So your husband not thanking you for something or your wife, you know, um, coming in and taking over or controlling something or, you know, somebody saying a specific word or, you know, some event happening somebody not responding to a text message. I mean, it could be a million things. It's tall grass. Mm -hmm. It reminds you of that thing, but your brain is so quick to not want to go there that now that becomes the problem. And now you're avoiding things. You're having physical symptoms. You're having responses to something that's not actually the issue, but is a reminder of the issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think once you help people understand that, then they start, you know, and I have clients all the time. They're like, Oh, that's tall grass. You know, that's tall grass. Like, yeah. this is tall grass. Or the husband would be like, yeah, I was totally tall grass this week. And what that does is that starts to allow people to have control over, oh, this isn't about us. You know, this isn't because our marriage is terrible and destined for, you know, failure. It's that we have some unresolved stuff that we need to get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tell me about, so EMDR, what other, what other kind of modalities do you think uh, help with trauma, like art, music? Uh, yeah, I think... Any, any way to tap into the pain in a new way. Um, art is good. Journaling is good. Um, theater is good. Um, not to not to plug the the book. The body keeps the score, but it is pretty awesome. Um, that f- the first half of that book is like what trauma is, and the second half is all the different treatment modalities. And there are so many. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just be EMDR. No, for Fortunately, sure. I mean, there's prolonged exposure. Yeah. There's you know, uh, biofeedback, there's, um, art therapy and music therapy, there's dance, there's, you know, all kinds of things, you know, that we can offer that people can offer to, to get to their healing. You know, I think that 
whatever it is, it, it's you leaning into that pain, you know, leaning into that right brain and doing that work and kind of pulling up, you know, what it's like for that kid that's, that's needing that attachment, that's needing that need met and that's acting 12. How do we talk to him or her? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we bring her into the room and validate her so she can be quiet and let you be an adult? Cause that's really what it's about. Right. It's like me and JC are arguing about something and I feel my 16 year old self coming up and wanting to have a say. Like, right. Hold on. I'm not going to do this again. I'm not going to experience this again. I'm not going to go through this same feeling and pain again. Mm-hmm. And then I have to go, well, hold on. <laughs> you know, like what, what's this about? What am I feeling? Oh, that reminds me a lot of X, Y, Z. Hey babe, I'm really triggered right now. I'm re- this is reminding this conversation. It's not you. It's that it's reminding me of this. Can you change how you're saying that? It's not really, you know, and then because she understands that about me, she can then alter what she's saying. But if she's triggered and I'm triggered at the same time, it's ooh, not going to work. It's no fun. No. Um, what do you think the benefits are of being kind of a, a trauma trained clinician versus the average clinician that's out there that doesn't really know anything about trauma? Uh, I think it helps you give a more customized treatment to clients. I think it helps you hear them better, see things that the average therapist would not. Um, it just gives you more insight into their internal world and their experience of what they've gone through and helps you be in a better place to walk through the fire with them. You know, it, I, I have to hand it to our clients. It takes a lot of bravery and courage to come in and be raw and vulnerable and, and tell their stories. And it's a tremendous honor for me to be able to sit there and, and help them and, hold their hand through the fire, but not the average therapist can do that because some of the stories are, you know, would make most people run for the hills, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I think that's why trauma-trained therapy is critical because the world keeps getting more complex and the, um, the trauma keeps getting more complex and overlapped and, you know, as clinicians, you have to stay up on your game and really know what you're dealing with. You know, if you're yeah. walking into a storm, you need to know which way the wind's blowing Absolutely. and what to do. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, that's such a good point because I don't think it's that other, you know, clinicians out there who aren't trained in trauma aren't good clinicians. I think it's very overwhelming if you don't know what's happening. Right. You know, if somebody comes in and they're all, I mean, I, I can, I laugh at myself sometimes if somebody comes in and there's a lot of chaos you know, there's so much detail. It's the first or second, third session, or even the 30th session, you know, and everything's melting down and, and they're telling me 50 things. And I, I find myself sitting there being like, man, you really need a professional, you know? And then, and then I start laughing. I'm like, oh yeah, they're here for therapy. Like that's you. You're the person who's the expert who's supposed to be helping them. And I have to, in the beginning when that feeling would come, I'd be like, man, you're terrible. You don't know what you're doing. You know, they need to get out of here and you need to quit being a therapist. But I've realized like, that that lets me know that there's a lot going on right you know it's not a problem of me not knowing what to do it's that i'm feeling obligated to fix 500 things in 30 minutes or 45 minutes and that becomes about me but now that you know having the trauma training you can stop and go okay let's slow this down those are all just symptomatic of the problem so if i can take each one you know it's not a thousand things you're actually having to fix it's a couple of things that you're having to adjust that play out a thousand ways and in the beginning i didn't know that you know, it was very overwhelming of like, how am I going to help this person? You know, they just had an abortion. They've, they've lost their spouse. They left their husband and whatever it is, it's like, oh my gosh, like that's so much. But if you have the context and the education, then it, what I've learned is people aren't uniquely broken. Right. Like they're, I mean, 
our stories are very unique. We're very special. I honor every one of my clients. I love hearing the stories. I love working with them. And at the same time, the way those stories play out are not an infinite number of ways, right? That, that, that the reason we have EMDR, the reason we have the research, the reason we have books that are really good is because humans play out these traumatic events and these things only a, a, a few variants. And because of that, as trauma therapists, we're like, well, you were sexually abused, you were beat up, you had a divorce. That's going to play out in three or four ways, and that's really it. Thank right. God. I mean, right. thank God those things don't play out 10,000 ways, or we'd all be kind of, you know, SOL. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk about a little bit about, uh, you, we mentioned epigenetics earlier. Can you talk about what that is? And I mean, it's a pretty recent, you know, kind of eye-opening thing that we're learning in the in the course of psychology but how that impacts things so if you want to incorporate kind of aces scores with that and we can just (laughs) dive into that for a second let's do (laughs) two topics we could talk about for two days um I, i epigenetics is fascinating i don't know a ton about it um this is what i love about the field of psychology is because it's constantly evolving and we're i still feel like we're only on the cusp of knowing everything we truly need to know mm-hmm. um but there's a book out there called it didn't start with you and um it talks a lot about that about how trauma can get passed down through generations and in a nutshell basically i could give you a technical definition but i'm not going to yeah, <laughs> for the average joke um, let me explain. I'll tell you about the, the rat research. Um, there was a famous study done um, a few years ago, a few years ago, I think, where they exposed male rats to the scent of a cherry blossom and shocked their foot and got them terrified of the smell of cherry blossoms. And so then those rats mated with other rats and had offspring. And whenever the offspring smelled cherry blossoms, they freaked out too. They got mm. really scared. And so I, it, it's, you know, I think research continues to go into this, but it kind of points to the fact it has to do with, I think they had, had been thinking that genetic markers were wiped clean yeah. um, prior to, you know, um, having offspring, but that doesn't look to be the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the difference between DNA, DNA and RNA, right? Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? So DNA is written in pen. I think an RNA is written in pencil. I might be getting those backwards, but you know, there are things that are, that are biological that don't change. Right. But then there are things that do change based on how our parents eat, drink, smoke, experience life. Yeah. And I think the thing about that study is that it focuses on the fear based response. And we know that like certain illnesses can be passed down in families, you know, through DNA and genetics and stuff like that. Um, but this is, this is a whole different ball of wax. Um, They've also done research into um, um, individuals post 9-11 that had lived through that, um, pregnant mothers that were pregnant during the 9-11 attacks, and also offspring of Holocaust survivors. And Mm. so it's kind of this whole new field that's opening up, um, talking about that stuff. It's super fascinating. Yeah, I think it's interesting from a biblical perspective, because from a Christian view, it's like, you know, quote unquote, your sins can be passed down from generation to generation. And I think people think of that like, God is punishing people because their grandfather, you know, smoked cigarettes. So now everybody's going to suffer. And really it's just biologically, if you do something that's going to harm yourself, there is a natural biological consequence for that for a long time. 
yeah. until someone deals with it. Because right. that's the amazing thing is as much as we know that addiction and trauma is passed down generation to generation, we also now can see that recovery can be passed down generation to generation. That if you heal your brain, if you rewrite neuropathways, if you get sober, that then your kids see you. It's it's this nature versus nurture because you know, there's the argument about alcoholism. It's like, oh, well, I'm an alcoholic and I was bound to be an alcoholic because my dad was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. So biologically, I didn't have a choice. I was screwed. My DNA, you know, set that up. And I'm like, well, but technically, you know, now that we do the epigenetic study, it's like, well, let's look at your social system. Like, did your dad recover? Well, no, he always drank till he, you know, did your grandfather recover? Well, no, he was always drinking. Okay, well, was it that you were destined to be an alcoholic or was it that you grew up in a family system in which alcohol was readily available? Your dad and your grandfather had emotional attachment issues that they didn't connect with you. Mm -hmm. So you had needs that you needed to meet growing up in a home where somebody was absent and emotionally disconnected and using a substance. And so that substance happened to be laying around and was something you saw. And because of your emotional needs and because of your emotional depravity, you picked up beer and it ended up being an uh, automatic connection and automatic thing you can't let, let go of. Right. And it's like, it's not so obvious that it's just in my DNA that I'm going to become an alcoholic. So you take another family and you go, okay, your grandfather drank all the time. Your dad drank all the time. And now we're going to give you therapy and your dad got therapy and he's telling you about alcoholism and how it's a problem in his life. And it's still difficult for him, but the pitfalls alcohol is all around you and you pick up alcohol and you're like, well, this isn't something that just hits me and I'm just run with it. And so there's just this complex, you know, thing about that, that we can't just, you know, whittle it down to this black and white. Everybody whose parents, you know, are alcoholics are destined to be alcoholics, nor can we say that it's only people's choices and that they just chose to drink and they should just stop. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, anything to say about that? Well, Sorry, it, I was going it, on a rant. it makes me think of, um, to a degree, secondary PTSD as well. Yeah. Like an, vicarious trauma. Yeah, yeah. Which is another, another thing that has come up in military families. You know, you have the veteran that comes home with PTS and if he doesn't get help or she doesn't get help, it, there's a natural, you know, effect onto the family of secondary PTS. Um, so those symptoms can travel, you know, it's, I, I think it's. Like you said, it's not black or white. It's it's a multi-pronged thing, right? It's not just genetics and DNA, and it's also behavioral um, behaviors that get passed down as well. Things that you see growing up and, and the way things are modeled. How was stress handled when you were growing up? How was love presented when you were growing up? Mm-hmm. What was what was the very definition of love in your family? Ask people that, you'll get a lot of different definitions. Oh, my goodness, yeah. I mean, if I had a dollar for every person who said, oh, I know my dad loved me, and then I'm like, okay, well, how do you know that? Well, he worked really hard. He, you know, provided for our family. I mean, he was never around and, you know, I mean, he didn't beat me or anything. And I'm like, okay, well, how did you know you were loved though? Well, I mean, I just knew, you know, he didn't really say it. You know, he wasn't very affectionate. Well, that's because his dad wasn't. And, you know, it's this narrative and it's like, okay, well, you knew you were safe and you knew your dad was secure, but you didn't know he loved you. Right. You, you, if he didn't kiss you and tell you he loved you and give you affection, you might have unconsciously known it because, you know, it didn't, it wasn't stated that he didn't, but there's some instability and some attachment and some, and some, uh, there's always going to be a wonder if that's the case right. because we can't just make things, um, 
what is it, expl- implicit with our kids. We can't just be like, yeah, I'm your dad, so I love you, and you just have to figure that out. We have to be explicit. We have to make sure we're saying the things and doing the things and being the things so that they don't have any doubt you know, as to what our, our status is. And, and that stuff gets passed down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, let's see what else we got to cover. Um, what are some, you talked about tools, talked about body keeps the score. Um, the last thing we can cover is kind of the culture. So one of the things we want to do here you know, and then I want our listeners to understand is that this, this has to change from a systemic perspective. And so if you, if you're out there and you're a doctor or you're a chiropractor or you're a lawyer or you're a, um, a church or you're a business provider, one of the things that we can do that I'm seeing play out over and over and over again in our culture is, is to have enough awareness and have enough trauma understanding and assume that everybody who's coming in and working for us has trauma that, we can be educated and trained to deal with our people better and, and not trigger them. And this isn't the idea of like, so uh, let's talk about the pendulum. So like with, with children, uh, 40 years ago, like you said, kids were to be seen, not heard. We didn't even know the word parenting. There wasn't even an understanding of how children were, you know, formed attachment and function. That's not very long ago. I mean, think about how many human beings have lived and been parented and parents didn't even know there was a thing about attachment. Right. So because they didn't know, obviously they did a botched job of it and we've all suffered epigenetically up into this point. So now we know, well, if we know that, then what's happened is, is we've swung over to the other side of now everything is psychological. Everything is traumatizing our children. We have to be there with them a hundred percent of the time. We have to go to school for them. We have to handle all their conflicts you know, parents go to college with their children and go to talk to their teachers. You know, we've swung over to this of like total pain avoidance, total conflict avoidance. We, we've gone from the authoritarian parenting to the helicopter. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so what we're trying to help people do is come back to the middle and say, okay, you can, your, your kid's going to suffer. You're not everything they need. Right. They're going to be, they're going to struggle and that's Okay. You just need to limit that and be there for them and be safe to walk alongside them and educate them on, on what and prepare them for that to be a thing. So when you give, a, for example, I'm a big fan of give a consequence every time. If there's a rule broken, there needs to be a consequence. But you don't have to yell and scream and hit them to give that consequence. Right. You want to punish the behavior, not the person. Right. And you want to really discipline the person, which is to teach them. You know, punishment is just a painful response to a thing. Discipline is here is a consequence for what you did, and this is going to teach you not to do that again because it's not best for you. Mm-hmm. And and so you take that. So my point to all that is that all of us as adults, that's kind of been the functioning in which we've been in. And so when I say you need to nurture your employees or you need to take care of your people, you need to be more therapeutic. What people hear is, oh, I got to baby them and I got to enable them. And like, that's ridiculous. And so now you have the people like, oh, they're triggered. And it's kind of a a joke. And there's these memes and there's these gifts about being triggered. And I get the swing. What we're talking about is being in the middle is having good boundaries, is having good accountability, is not letting people off the hook, but understanding that if they had a baby or they lost a baby or they have anxiety or there's grief in their family or their husband's an alcoholic, that all that's going to reside in them. And if we as, as churches and as, as businesses can just bear, like use caveats in our language, you know, like say a, a few things, give them an extra day, you know, express that we actually have some understanding of what they're going through. That's all we need to do. 
Mm-hmm. We don't need to do a parade and make everything this huge enabling, you know, thing, but doing nothing makes everything worse. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So thoughts on that? Uh, I think you have to kind of start with some of the, the people in positions of leadership and so that they know what to do so that their leadership and management style can trickle down to, to staff and people underneath them, like a church, for example. Um, I did I did a presentation and some research on that, I think the first year I was here, mm-hmm. about the, the number of people suffering in, in your average congregation from uh, extreme mental illness of like bipolar all the way to depression and anxiety. Um, the number of traumatic events that people have gone through and this isn't a church and you know churches are supposed to be safe places where people can go and connect and and share it but sometimes the leadership they don't know what to do with it you know and so I think some training there would be critical it doesn't have to be you don't have to go get a PhD like you said you just have to have a level of understanding and empathy and, and validation and be able to direct people to some resources where they can get the help that they need. Yeah, absolutely. So we wrote a program here, you know, called for the one. And part of that is that we want to be training churches, training businesses and being kind of first responders to people in their congregation. And that, and that means they need to know, like you just said, all the research that goes into how many people are dealing with all these things, because I think, if we go back to the whole conversation, we have a culture where we're not supposed to talk about these things. We're trained not to talk about these things. We think talking about them is dangerous. So everybody just kind of shows up to work, shows up to church, shows up to wherever, pretending like everything's okay and not being even aware of how those things are playing out. So if you have a leadership who understands that that's not the case, then they can see differently. They can have a different lens to respond to. And so when an event happens, you know, they can handle it more properly. And then it doesn't, that vicarious trauma doesn't trickle out to everybody else because when that happens and it's handled poorly, then people talk, it gets spread out. And then those people go, well, I'm absolutely not going to tell my pastor or my Sunday school or my church my Bible study about this porn issue or this divorce issue or this abuse issue. I'm, you know, I'm not talking about it again. And then that just continues to snowball the thing. So if you're out there and you're listening and you want to know how to deal with trauma more, you want to be trained in trauma, um, I met yesterday with uh, Martin Luther King Foundation and CVS, and they want the same thing. They're like, how do we help our people who, you know, are we're treating, we're dealing with them we're, to be more trauma-informed? So when these people come in who are off the street or who are in poverty or struggling, their whole self is taken into context, that, that we're not just, like, meeting them and meeting this need in this silo, that you know, that we're able to show them. And what I was saying is, is that what happens is, is people show up at places – and they have trauma and they know they do, but they don't know what to call it. And then because you obviously aren't looking for that, you're unsafe. So yep. you're automatic. You think you're being nice. You think you're giving them a chiropractic care. Or you think you're giving them a bank statement or you think you're giving them whatever it is they do. And you're just doing your job and you have great intentions. But by not being able to just have a couple of sentences or a couple of responses that are appropriate in their brain because they're on hypervigilance mode from the trauma they're saying you're not safe and you obviously have no knowledge of what it's like to be me right but if you can have training then they come in and you say something like wow you know i know you've been on the streets for a while or i know you've been in low income like that can cause a lot of trauma you know have you ever been in counseling or can we set you up with somebody then they're a hundred percent more likely to come back in to use your resources appropriately to to do the thing that you actually are there for them to do mm-hmm and I see this frustration with people of being like, why don't they come back? Or why aren't they doing right? Why aren't they taking their meds? Why aren't they showing up? And it's like, 
well, have you mentioned at all about their issues or trauma? Have you, you don't have to be a therapist. Like you said, you don't have to have a PhD, but you can have some one-on-one basic training around how to deal with people. Yeah. And I think, you know, a culture of heavy shame and judgment doesn't help. No. You know, so that's, that's definitely something we need to work on. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and, and open, you know, and, and you see this in the military too, you know, the stigma and the fear of getting passed over for promotion and, um, can't, I think kind of driving him the message it's chemistry, not character. That's critical. That's a good one. Yeah. And and you say military, I say fire department, police department, law offices, doctor's offices, ORs, you know, you, you, every system in which right now we live in an American society is dealing with human beings who have a large percentage of trauma. And then they're seeing and hearing these difficult things without the right tools. And now they have trauma. And I'm saying they, meaning the doctors and the OR patient, you know, the OR doctors and the, and the fire department and the police department. And yet so little amount of dollars and so minimal, a little amount of influence and focus is on their care, you know, and especially for those people like being in the military and I'm not minimizing cause I get it, but you go on deployment, it's horrible. You have a terrible deployment. You come home and then you get a break. You know, you go to your job, you work, you go to your unit, whatever it is. You're not in the trauma constantly. Now that's horrible and it needs a lot of help. But if you're a police officer or a firefighter or an OR person or somebody who's a first responder, you're going to work. You're dealing with, you know, dying people, sick people, mentally ill people. And then you're leaving and going to, you know, Whole Foods and getting your groceries. And then you're going to dinner with your friends. And then you're going back to work the next day to go right back into the, the fray, so to speak. And so your only option is to just shove it and shove it and shove it and shove it. And you and I know that that's the people that come in our office. That's Mm -hmm. the seven year gap where it's like, wish I would have taken care of this four years ago. I I mean, I can't tell you the amount of people are like, God, if we'd only had you three years ago, or if we'd only come in five years ago, or if we'd only, right. And the problem is, is education, availability, cultural change, paradigm shifts where we as a culture and it's getting better. There is hope. I mean, a lot more people are like, you need to go to therapy. A lot more pastors are like, this is outside of my realm. I've seen you three times. I can't do this. I'm not a therapist. Go to Clint Davis Counseling. That's super awesome. But we're just touching the iceberg of what that needs to look like. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, well, any final thoughts? This is great. I think we covered most of the stuff we wanted to cover. Uh, I mean, we could have dove into all that like a million hours. We'll but save aces for the next one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've talked about it before. Um. I don't know what else. Anything that you you just want to talk about or finish up on? Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the aces real quick? Yeah, we got time. Yeah, uh, aces. Um, it's a good assessment for somebody that's out there that's like, do I have trauma? You know what what you know what are they even talking about? Some of this sounds. This is a very practical way to kind of look at your life. So. Yeah, the aces stand for adverse childhood experiences survey. It is a piece of research that came out, I want to say around 97-ish, where they, um, they, it was, I think, Kaiser Permanente and the CDC that put that together. Um, but basically, they, they um, noticed a correlation between early uh, bad childhood experiences and later chronic illness and bad health outcomes, basically. And so they put together um, a survey, a quick one, which actually I, I give all the patients that come in, I give that to them to see what their ACEs score is. 
um, but it checks for 10 markers, which unfortunately it's only 10. We know it should be more, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's 10. I'm going to be quiet and not going to tangent. I know you want to talk about <laughs> I know you, I know what Jerry you want to talk about. I agree with you. Um, but yeah, they assess for if you, your parents divorced, if somebody was incarcerated, if somebody, um, did drugs in front of you, if you survived a sexual assault, if you, you know, what have you, mm-hmm. the higher your ACEs score, the higher your likelihood of having chronic illness and mental illness as well. So and, it's kind of like yeah, dying a, early, COPD, heart attack. I mean, all these major issues that everybody's trying to figure out, like, why is this happening and how do we do it? But I, I think it's important because for the longest, you know, if you think back vintage uh, years of medical world, the psych unit was over there and we didn't talk about it. You know, and medicals over here, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like stuff like that is very helpful in terms of bridging the gap and bringing together the mental health and the psych world. Yeah. Because there is a, a, a huge connection. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's why we have Dr. Mandy Crow, and that's why we have Jenna Watson and Dr. Sure. Virginia Carter, Dr. Virginia Carter. And, you know, we have this team now of integrative wellness people who are able to see you know, people holistically see them that they're actually their emotional and spiritual health is probably the most important thing in their life. And then that plays into their physical health, their ability to function, their ability to do their job. And yet we as American society have reversed that whole thing. You know, we're so focused on behavior modification and treating symptoms. And then we, we forget the root cause of all these things is, you know, and, and we have, that's crazy because we have the study, like we have the research that shows like if you've had all this emotional trauma, you're going to have a lot of physical body, you know, symptoms and sickness and illness, and it's going to cause all these things. But we, most people don't see somebody who has a heart defect or a heart disease or a heart issue or is obese. They don't say, well, what happened in your childhood? Right. <laughs> like they don't think of, they don't connect those two. Yeah. They, they, they focus on the, well, what are you eating? And you know, what's going on in the last, do you, you know, we all go to the doctor and we check the thing off of like, you know, what your, your, what your parents have and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, but that's rarely ever talked about or rarely ever brought into the situation. And I think that, you know, having these podcasts, having these conversations, doing the work that we do, you know, we're just trying to bring light to the nuance of that. Because if we, if we as a society don't switch and start dealing with the the root causes, then we're in serious trouble. And that's, you know, we need a whole nother podcast on the next decade and what that's going to look like with teens and in the culture and social media and technology and you know, the way we're shifting everything. I mean, and that's all coming out in politics and, and we're getting farther and farther away from each other and more and more, you know, divisive. And yet the issues are still the same. Yeah. And, you know, I saw something the other day, they, people talk about the obesity epidemic all the time, which Mm -hmm. is, is a very real thing, but also what's kind of emerging is right behind that is a loneliness epidemic. Oh yeah. Isolation, isolation. And you know, people getting stuck on their social media feeds and some recent research on that kind of confirms that people actually feel way worse once they look at their social media feeds than when they started. Oh yeah. If you do a pros cons list, uh, like a practical pros cons list of being on social media for the average person, who doesn't know what all the stuff we're talking about, who isn't resilient, who hasn't prepared, who hasn't taken the deep breath before they get on it. The list of cons is so long and the list of pros is very, very short, but yet we keep doing it. It's a drag. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's like McDonald's. We all know that it's horrible for you, 
that you can leave it out for two years and nothing changes and that and yet millions of people a day they write it right on their sign serving millions of people a day you know and it's just like man that's our biggest thing is not being mindful not having the capacity to be mindful not healing to be mindful not having the the socioeconomic status to be mindful like it's the mindfulness is a privilege to some degree but once you get healthy you realize anybody can anybody can get up and stretch anybody can be mindful anybody can learn to have insight into themselves have insight into their traumas and start to think differently which will lead to acting differently and the way to do that is that you have to get into therapy. You have to deal with other people. You have to be vulnerable. You have to build a community around yourself that supports that, that, it, that gives you affirmation about that, that sees your story and your narrative in context with all the things you've been through. And, and when you have that, which sounds you know hard to get, so much healing happens and so much trauma recovery happens, and, and we get to see that every day. Yeah. And so if you're sitting out there and you're listening to this and you're like, man, that sounds like a lot or that's where I'm at. It does not have to be that way forever. And in reality, like it can be a year sounds like a long time or even two years sounds like a long time to recover. But, you know, we have, you know, we work with trafficking victims who have been trafficked for five and six and seven years. And within a year or two of therapy and recovery, they're working at Subway. They have their kids back like they're doing amazing. Yeah. What's the phrase, uh, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't have to do it forever. You know, it's, it, it's you, you have to get in and do the work and then invest that time and see things long term. like see that, Oh, I want to divorce. Well, if you divorce now, the consequences for that are forever. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't divorce. I'm saying let's at least know what we're getting into, you know, and know that I'm going to work on this for a little while and it's worth two or three years to work on my marriage versus 40 years that I have left to be broken and hurt and my kids to suffer and situations to suffer. At least when you, when you divorce, know why you're doing it, right. know where it's coming from because the alternative is you divorce and you don't know any of that and you didn't do any of the work. Well, you just carry all of that with you into the next thing. And then your divorce rate is like 82% likely, you know, it's just, it's these oh yeah, of, the divorce rate for second and third marriages is super high. I think the first time around it's fifty, the second time it's seventy five percent. The third's like eighty and ninety. Yeah. Like it's like you it's can't bad. even do it. And yeah. and the reason is is that people it's not that people can't survive divorce. It's that they they don't know to do the work so that they can. Yeah, but the work is hard, and a lot of people, you know, it's tough. Absolutely. You know, but worth it. It is. I've been in therapy for eleven years, twelve years now, and keep doing it and keep working at it and you know it, it it costs me money and time and energy and but it's it's far worth it you can't afford not to do it you really really can you know people say that about god like you know how do people do this without god or how do people survive it and i'm like well i don't know if they do you know they don't you know you can survive but how how much of your level of functioning is out there that you can you know actually have a good happy content life and that's up for debate i listened to this uh talk with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson the other night, and that's the whole debate is atheism versus Christianity versus religion, not just Christianity. And there's a lot to be said about that, um, that we could talk about all day with trauma, but I'll shut up and we can do another podcast on that. All right. If you're out there, um, listening, Lenita Proctor, she does an amazing, what's your last name now? Didn't it change? <laughs> it's still Proctor okay. professionally. Gotcha. All right. Uh, yeah. Congratulations, by the way. Um, and so we need to proctors here, um, with us. So, so thankful to have you working with me and being part of this practice. And I know it's going to be a long time together and I'm super thankful for it. I love working with couples with you. 
I love sharing referrals back and forth and staffing cases. I love all the work that you do. And I know that if you're out there listening, your lineage client, you know how amazing she is and how, how good a work she does. So thank you for your time and your just thoughtfulness about how you talk about this, how you treat people, how you love God, how you work through all the things that you do. Because, um, you know, there's so few people out here battling this stuff and dealing with it. And so I'm so thankful yeah. for you. Well, I want to thank you for doing this because none of this would be possible unless you were here, well. unless you'd had the vision and the guidance from God to do all this. I mean, it's, it's changed a lot of lives. Well, I give it all to Jesus. It's all on him. I, I just, I, I'm surprised every day by the fact that we get to do this. You know, I can't really take much credit for it because he continues to just, you know, fill us up with people and change the culture around us in Treeport and Bossier. And I hope that, you know, we're continue to be able to do that um, throughout the nation and that in the next decade, we're able to really make an impact into the world. Thank you. If you're listening, uh, asking why podcast, please subscribe on our YouTube channel. Please like it, leave some comments, leave some um, reviews on iTunes or Podbeam or wherever you're listening to it. That would be super helpful for us. Um, thank you and God bless. Have a good one.